From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. Happy New Year. And let's just go right into it. It's something that irritates a lot of you. And you know, to a tiny extent, me too. But when it irritates you, what you want to do is trace it and face it and not erase it, but explain it. I can't make that rhyme. But what I'm talking about is this. You've got a crisis. All right. And boy, do we this week. Well, crisis crises. That's the technical plural. I don't use it. I say crises, but you can say crises. Analysis. Well, if there are two of them, then analyses. Okay. Genesis, genesis. Parentheses. I think a lot of us are a little insecure about it because, you know, when do you talk about one of them? But I think we know intellectually it's a parenthesis. But if you have more than one parenthesis, well, then parentheses. Ellipsis, if you are given to talk about such things, well, ellipses. Okay. So you've got those weird plurals that you pick up, you know, probably sometime around college, but there's something that one hears a lot. I doubt if it's new, but one does hear it a lot. Processes. So you would think that it's processes, but a lot of people talk about, well, we're going to have to rethink these processes because And that irritates a lot of you in whatever voice it's said in. And, you know, frankly, on this show, I'm always talking about how there is no such thing in the scientific sense as improper language, unsuitable language, language that isn't basically effective at getting the message across. And that's true. But that doesn't mean that I'm not a human being. And there are little things that bother me just like we don't all like coconut. I don't. For the record, a lot of people seem to think of coconut as quite delicious. It it irritates me. And a coconut aspect of language, I must admit, is that when somebody says processes, it does rub me a little bit the wrong way. I think, no, it's processes. Why are you making process into this Latinate word? But, you know, that feeling makes no more sense than my not liking coconut or almond. You know, that anisette taste, don't like it. That's not scientifically correct that I don't like it. It's just my particular taste because, frankly, in terms of plurals, these days the way we do plurals regularly in English is a grand mistake. As I've often mentioned, plurals in Old English were much cooler. They were more irregular. Egg, egru, lamb, lambru, the plural of oak was ak, the plural of goat was gat. It was really much more fun. And then gradually, for various reasons, the s plural was rampantly overgeneralized. And now it's just taken over like some sort of kudzu or virus. And we just have little irregularities like men and women and children huddling in the corner. The way we do plurals now would sound to an old English speaker like a ghastly mistake. So I can't say that if a representative number of people are saying processes, and it really is an awful lot of people, that it qualifies as a mistake. Where do you draw the line? Who knows? But it's an awful lot of people who are saying processes. And the truth is, despite how I feel in, this is the first time I'm saying it on the air, 2020, despite how I feel in 2020, hearing somebody say processes, the truth is getting things like that into the language is only making English more like it used to be. 
That really is the truth. In any case, when you're hearing something like processes, what you do is, if you're going to be a linguist sort of person, you build an analysis. So you might ask the question, as many of you have asked me, why are people walking around saying processes? Okay, that is a question. But the answer is not just going to be, well, you know, some people just suck. That's not an answer. And it's not going to be something about the internet, because I know this goes before that. I remember people saying processes when I was an adolescent. And it's not going to be, well, why don't more people know Latin? Because frankly, is that really something that we need to think that much about? God bless Latin. We've talked about it on the show. But with all that faces the world and our country and ourselves, really, is the idea that more people need to know a language that is dead? I don't think so. No, I think we can come up with a more constructive way of looking at processes than that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on? Well, first of all, it's about Latin. Latin is not English, and plurals worked differently in Latin. And this is a third declension issue, and we don't need to go that far into the weeds, but let's say that you have a word for tower, and it's turis, turis. I doubt if they rolled the R's, but there were two of them. So turis. Well, the plural was not turises, but the plural was tures. Okay, so turis, tures. Now, in English spelling, that looks like two reads. And so with these words like crisis and analysis, it happens that one can, in English, because those words came into the language relatively late and from Latin and were introduced by people who prided themselves on the fact that they knew Latin, those words can be used with their Latin plurals, hence the crises and the ellipses and the parentheses. Okay, so our question is, why are people extending it to process, which is not one of those words. Processes seem just fine, but there seems to be something in a lot of people that saying processes feels correct. It feels like you're supposed to do it. People aren't just, you know, chewing up some food and then taking it out of their mouths and throwing it at spectators. It's not that. It's people trying to make things more tidy. Why does that feel tidy? Well, one does an analysis. First, we're going to look at the words that everybody agrees are allowed to have these funky Latin plurals. What is it about them? What are they like? Crises, analyses. Well, one thing about them is that they're kind of formal. You know, crisis, analysis, genesis, parenthesis, ellipsis, those are $10 words. These are not words that the typical even precocious toddler runs around using. You might not even be using them when you're 10. They're rather sophisticated words. And so that's why it's not every word that ends in is that we have a sense that we're going to make into ease in that way. So for example, let's say that you're someone who is more into listening to language than to reading language, or maybe you're just somebody who lives fast. So you've got crisis, analysis, promise. Promise, it ends in the same sound. Notice nobody says, well, I'm sorry that I failed to keep all the promies I made you. No one would say that. And the reason for it is that promise isn't formal. 
know, it's not the most gut bucket word, but crisis analysis, Genesis, you're thinking of a blackboard. Promise, it's, it's more humble. Promise is a beef stew kind of word. Promise smells like beef stew. It's, it smells exactly like that. Whereas crisis and analysis and Genesis, those words smell like pencil lead. So no promise. Now, what else about crises, analyses, genesis? Why is it that those are okay? Another thing about them is that they're not only formal, but there is a frequency issue in that you use those words in the plural a lot. And so that weird, irregular plural can really get drilled into your head. There are many crises quite often. You do your analyses. Parentheses occur doubly almost all the time in our experience, such that learning that there's a such thing as a parenthesis comes much later. And that means that we don't use the plural ending with all Latin words that came in with that structure. So think of a pelvis, if you must. Well, now think of two. They are not pelvis. Now, if you go into the dictionary, you'll find that that's on the books, but God knows who says pelvis. And that's because we don't experience pelvises in the plural that much. My God, four pelvises. You know, where, where would that be outside of a laboratory? Just maybe anatomists talk about pelvis, but there are only like six of them. So no pelvis. That's not what we do. And so it's the same thing for oasis. Oases? Well, part of it is that we don't talk about two or three oases very often. It's, it's one oasis. While you're in the desert, you usually think of a mirage. Or if you're talking about camels drinking water at one, you're not thinking of, well, how many oases has that camel experienced? We don't use it that way. Or basis. Well, bases, you know, bases for analysis. Usually we're just going to say basis for analysis. And then there's axis, axes. Most of us are only dealing with one axis at a time. I'm just going to make a guess that certain professors are maybe given to saying axes because they talk about axes so much, but most of us don't. And so that means that axes feels more alien than, say, analyses. There's one exception here, which is that one might encounter more than one diagnosis. If you're in a certain situation, there are going to be a bunch of diagnoses. Now, technically, you could say that the plural is diagnoses. I can say at 54, I have never heard anybody say that in any setting. I imagine maybe medical practitioners use it when no one's listening, but it's not something that most of us use. And the reason for that, I suspect, is that diagnosis, you know, think of your immediate associations with that word. It's urgent. Something sad might be going on. And so one is disinclined to be too persnickety and start using plurals that a lot of people don't know, especially depending on education. And so there's a kind of a patch on diagnoses. But for the most part, the words that take that ease ending and that we don't have any problem with, they're formal and they're ones where the plural is frequent just because of aspects of the concept and how it fits into society. And so if it's about formality and frequency of plural, then we can come back to process. So what happens is process is something that does happen in the plural a lot. You can talk about processes all the time. So you say processes and you're not writing it, you're speaking. And speaking is rapid, speaking is subconscious. You say processes. And what you feel is that this word went by and it's kind of formal. A process is formal. You're not saying <laughs> the way we're going to do it. You're saying process. That, that's formal. And you talk about it in the plural a lot, all of these processes. You know, what are, what are we going to do? You say processes. And there's that is. Well, it's formal. You encounter it in the plural a lot. 
And you might even have said in the last breath something about a crisis, something about an analysis. Now, processes. You feel like, well, is is supposed to be ease. And so processes, no, it's supposed to be ease. And so you say processes, even though the word is not process, so that you're saying processes, it's processes. But you add that plural ending on, then you think what I'm supposed to be saying at the end of a word that has this flavor is ease. And so processes. That's where it comes from because it's formal and because it is frequently used. See, I'm getting the alliteration and there's going to be a little more of that. Frequently used in the plural. Now, there's a reason why it's only process. If we're going to do an analysis, we have to think about words that are shaped like process and whether or not it works. And so process, recess. You know, they are, you know, those are two words that could be friends based on the structure of them in terms of their sound. But nobody talks about recesses. There's no such thing. And one of the reasons for that is because, for one thing, recess, if you're thinking about where you're hanging on the monkey bars and trying to give somebody a kiss or something like that, at least that's what I remember doing, recess is not formal. People are running around smacking each other. There's nothing formal about it. And it's not really exactly a, a plural kind of concept. How many recesses did people get smacked at? You're talking about one recess. It's something that we usually experience as a single thing at a time. So no recesses. Talk about a mattress. So mattress, nobody, or at least nobody who deserves to have any kind of social or other kind of intercourse would talk about having bought several mattresses. No one's going to say that. If anybody's thinking about saying it, please don't. And the reason that nobody would say that is partly because there's nothing formal about a mattress. You can talk about them in the plural, I suppose, but it's not formal. It's too gut bucket, you know, back to the kind of beef stew as opposed to the pencil lead. So not that. However, this still doesn't quite work. Formality, frequency, no recesses, no mattresses because it's not formal enough. But what about princess? Princess is kind of formal, really. Because a princess is running some you know, kingdom or something like that, and she's in those clothes. It's kind of formal. And there might be a bunch of princesses. You know, there are whole stories about things. And yet, no princesses. You know, here's a story where the princesses quarrel with one another. No, nobody would ever say that. So processes feel so natural. Princess might as well be the same word. Nobody would say, well, there's a bit of over-marketing of all of these Disney princesses. Nobody says that. And that is because we have another factor here. It's not about formality. It's not about frequency. It's that it's too concrete. A princess is a thing or a person, a thing. And that means that nobody talks about, well, it was wonderful seeing all of these actresses. No, no, actresses. Nobody feels the need to say actresses. You don't talk about waitresses because those are real entities as opposed to abstractions. Same thing with iris. Nobody says iris, for one thing. Nor does anybody say, well, um, it's Valentine's Day. I'm going to buy her some irises. Notice that's hopeless. It's because you can hold irises and you can you can smell them. I've always favored them as what you give somebody. You know, somebody gives you flowers and they're always sending you like zinnias or or daisies with baby's breath in them or something like that. Why not irises? I've always thought they looked kind of like women and they there's I think they have a certain never mind. Anyway, they've always been my favorite flower next to tulips, but nobody calls them irises. What it means is that you've got the formality, you've got the frequency of plural, and then you've got that it's abstract. Now, if that's going to be a f, then um, 
off the top of my head, let's say that it's formless, which is hopeless, but we, we need the F. And so formality, frequency of plural, and then formless. That's what determines this. And that's why you get processes. And then it means, this is what I mean by analysis, all of that predicts that there's going to be another one of these. Some of you are probably already thinking of it. The person who talks about processes also is given to saying biases. You hear that a lot. Well, why? Because bias is a formal word. You learn it when you're about 16. Then you encounter biases in the plural a lot because bias is unfortunately rather fundamental to being human. And so you talk about people's biases often. And then it's not concrete. You can't hold a bias in your hand and give it a bottle. It's an abstraction. And therefore, processes and biases. Ease. Easy. That is a shamelessly graceless transition to a song cue because it's just time that we had one easy. Let's make it. Let's open up the year with Easy Living. This is a grand old 1930s pop song. Most people are fond of the Billie Holiday version. And, you know, that's so commonly heard that I'm going to do my job here being deliberately obscure. We're going to do the Peggy Lee version, which is actually one of my favorite cuts of hers and of all time. Even notice the instrumental intro. So a little bit of Easy Living before we move on. Living for you is easy living, it's easy to live when you're in love, and I'm so in love, there's nothing in life but you. The years I'm giving, it's easy to give when you're in love. I'm happy to do whatever I do. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Processes, biases, they're in there. And as I said, even if they feel unwelcome to some of us, or even if they feel like somebody's trying too hard, and we'll get to that, they actually make the language more complex. And to me, at least, I always like it when English gets more complicated, because I've got kind of complexity envy when I think about a language such as Russian, Oksana, but we've talked about that. So, we have something like processes, biases, it means that these irregular Latin plurals end up extending. What this means is normal change in a language. It isn't always about dropping a sound. So you see comfortable on the page, but you probably say comfortable or vegetable. No, vegetable. 
Well, change often involves dropping sounds. It's not always about creating redundancies. So, you know, irregardless, etc. It's not always about that. It's not always about losing some useless but cute nuance, such as that we're supposed to say fewer books, but most of us probably in our spontaneous moments say less books instead. Change also creates complications. So, for example, you have something like sneaked used to be more common than snuck, which we tend to prefer now. But that means that we have made sneak irregular or dived used to be more popular than dove. If you talked about swimming with William Howard Taft, I don't know why I'm choosing him. Imagine what kind of bathing suit he probably had, though. If you talked about swimming with William Howard Taft, well, he probably would have said, well, and then I dived. He did sound kind of like that, as opposed to dove, which is what we would say. So those sorts of things can happen, as I have said in a previous episode, and I meant it. I was unanimous in this. Language change is not all about simplification. If that were the way it was, then all of us would just be rolling around drooling. Now, language is also about complication. And so what we're dealing with, with processes and biases, is this irregular now, because not everybody does it, but complexifying factor. And to the extent that it feels messy, like somebody left a smudge somewhere, there are things like that that don't bother any of us at all. So for example, let's take the comparative, how you do the comparative with adjectives in this crazy language. There are two ways you can do it. You can put er on the end, and so you can say something like big and then bigger, or you can use the word more and put it before. And so um, horrible, more horrible. Or the way more and more people are saying it today, horrible, horrible. I'm beginning to date myself by saying horrible. So horrible, more horrible. Okay. Well, what decides it? You may never have thought about that. If you're an English speaker, you never have to think about it and you never do it wrong. But what decides that? Well, basically, if you've got one syllable, then you can be pretty safe with er. And so bigger, smaller, taller, badder. There you go. That's all pretty easy. But what about if you've got three syllables? Well, there it's got to be more. And so obvious, obviouser? No, it's got to be more obvious. Ridiculous, more ridiculous, not ridiculouser. So for example, there's a beautiful encapsulization of this in a cute little joke in one of my very favorite, I mean very favorite, top 25 Looney Tunes. Not a well-known one. It's called Tom, Turk, and Daffy. It's with Daffy Duck and Porky Pig. I think, I highly suggest that you take a look at it on YouTube if you like Looney Tunes at all. It's a cartoon that's witty ahead of its time. But here's a little bit of dialogue with Daffy Duck where he indicates how we actually do or don't do comparatives based on how many syllables there are. He's after me. He's going to kill me. Don't let him kill me. I'm too young to die. I got my whole life before me. Love, travel, good books. Oh, hide me. Hide me. Hide me. Together, Tom. Snap out of it. Snap out. You're verging on the hysterical. Come on now. Brace up. Brace up. There. That's more like it. Now, let's see now. Where will I hide this seagull? Oh, here we are. No, no. A little too obvious. Yeah, too obvious.
a fart. Isn't that speech that the turkey makes good? I love that the turkey is this educated, middle-class white man of the mid-20th century. The person who did the voice of the turkey, for the record, was Billy Bletcher. The problem is, what about with two syllables? And so, for example, narrow, narrower. Okay, that works. Little, littler. Good. Pretty, prettier. Right. Humble, humbler. Probably. Although you could say more humble. So you're thinking, well, then it's one or two syllables, then it's er, and then with three, then it's more. But not really because modern. Moderner? Everybody would understand you, but it sounds a little clumsy. It's like you have gout or something. Bitter? Bitterer. No, that's a joke. That's something that somebody would do in verse that they considered funny. I'm tired. I'm tireder than I was last night. More tired is is better really you know what what determines it or one that really sits right on the line clever he's cleverer than her Uh, more clever it's hard to say and you know there is i've got to give you another clip now because there is a show tune that just gets this dead on this is a musicalization of noel coward's play blythe Spirit. It's called High Spirits, and it was modestly successful in the late early 60s. And this is a song called Was She Prettier Than I? And to go very quickly into the weeds for those of you who care about this kind of thing, I wanted to play the American cast album, but for infrastructural reasons having to do with my schedule, which I won't bore you with, I was not able to get the cut from my CD. Yes, I've still got quite a few. And so what's online is the British cast album, which frankly is much soupier than the Broadway cast album. So the person who's singing this song is singing it much too high for my taste and the arrangement sucks. But this is what we have. And the point is, listen to the lyric where you have to play with this idea of whether or not you can use er and on what words. Walking down the street to meet you, was she prettier than I? question is, why this new complication? What determines that a language lets complexity seep in? Well, sometimes it's more that the language lets old things sit, and because they sit, they make things more complicated, even if the language was trying to be simpler. So, for example, this S plural spreads everywhere, but you've got the remnants, you've got the dead spider caught in the screen, and so you've got things like the children and the lice and the geese, etc., and geese but not meese, 
etc. So those things are kind of like you know, appendixes in the body. What's the appendix for? I don't think anybody knows. And you know, clearly you can be without it and live a pretty full life. Or the coccyx, that tailbone that sometimes you can break. Well, what's that in there for? Because you know we used to have tails and now we don't. That's the way languages work. Languages have appendixes and coccyxes. <laughs> but also, it's that If you've got something complicated, the language doesn't always want to just flush it out. Human beings can handle an amazing amount of linguistic complexity that has no real purpose. And so that means that you get new irregular verbs like snuck taking over or dove taking over. Or this is for the Rappaport Willses, the idea that you have this word yeet and that there's an idea that the past form is yote. And you guys ask, well, why would you bring in a new irregularity when the idea is that the language gets simpler? But no, actually, often we pattern new things on the irregularities. Sometimes you just want to stick with what you know. And so yeet and yote rather than yeeted. This is this verb that refers roughly to throwing something over a distance. I yeeted it into the trash. The, the, the kids are using it, I'm told. And you can say that yesterday you yote it. There is some controversy over how real yote is, but it's so cute that I hope it's real. And that, Rappaport Wills, is my answer to your question. But sometimes you just kind of keep things. You don't get rid of everything. Like, for example, I just got rid of my speakers, my receiver and my speakers. But, you know, I didn't get rid of them because I just can't let go of the idea that the proper middle-class home has some goddamn speakers in it. So the truth is, I took the speakers and I put them over by the wall in my lobby, and I kind of just kept deliberately forgetting to get rid of them. And then I had a box, and Gracie, the cat, kind of, she was almost verbally telling me she wanted a box to curl up in. So I got a little box that books had been in and I put some old rags in, sprinkled some catnip. And so that, now that's her bed. And she seems to like the bed a little bit raised on the speakers. So that means I can't get rid of the speakers, of course, now. So now they've become furniture. And really, it's just that I can't let go of 1979. Verbs are like that, too. I also have a lazy boy chair and I'm about to buy another one because there are times when you want the past to stay. It's that. You get complications because Either old stuff is hanging around, or actually you kind of like the old stuff, and so you end up bringing in more. But then also, in this case, we're dealing with the formality issue. Now we're going to hit the aspect of processes and biases that's a little delicate, which is that you hear somebody saying processes and biases, and if you're not somebody who happens to be given to saying it yourself, or you don't know that you say it, then you're thinking, it sounds kind of like the person's trying It sounds like the person's kind of sticking their little finger up when they're drinking their tea. You think of it as illegitimate because the person is trying to make it seem like they know Latin or, or something. And of course, we know nobody is consciously thinking those things. But there's an extent to which biases and processes sounds to us like something that you might call kind of doily grammar. It's just this little note that you figure a person doesn't need to strike, especially in our come-as-you-are era. I imagine many people would have felt differently about that in 1870, but today we want to we wanna keep it real, and processes and biases has a way of not quite sounding real. But what it's about is that there's an aspect of speaking a language that tends not to make it tabulated into the books, but is as important 
to speaking as a human being, no matter where that human being is, as doing past tenses or making something into the plural and the sorts of things that we think of as the what's for dinner kind of grammar. Formality is a part of what you could call grammar. There are all sorts of things that are grammar that we're not told are. Softeners is one of them, as I discussed recently. Formality is another one. The idea that in some situations you are more monitored. In some situations, you're more deliberate. In some situations, you're thinking harder about exactly the way you're coming off. And this is not just a quote-unquote modern thing. In any language, once you dig beneath the surface, there is the kind that you use, if only in ceremony, which is a kind of formality, as opposed to casual speech while you're shucking clams by the seaside or something like that. In Panama, a group of people called the Kuna have a language. It's the Kuna language. And when the chief is making a speech, the chief uses grammatical forms that are only used in making speeches like that. And some of these forms are so opaque that there's somebody standing at the side kind of translating what he's saying into less formal language for the audience. So the Kuna group have that formality, not because there's something exotic about the Kuna, but because they are human beings using a language. Or for example, somebody I try not to mention on this show because frankly would be cliche not to mention often depressing, but part of why the way President Trump communicates is so striking in 2020 or you know, really at any point during his lifetime is because he is not interested in using the formal aspect of speech. All presidents before him at least pretended, but that's not what he does. And it's weird to encounter that a president dwells almost exclusively in informal kinds of speech because the full palette of language involves this kind of formality parameter. Japanese is a good example. I could use Korean, but I know less of it. And so Japanese. Japanese is all about this issue of formality. You can learn the basic beef stew grammar of Japanese and really be unable to use the language in any remotely effective way if you're really going to dive in. Because knowing how to do the plural, or in the case of Japanese, not do the plural, knowing how to put things in the past tense, all that's very nice. But a big part of speaking Japanese is to control the layers of formality and its words and its endings and it's the way you put the words together. And all of it is absolutely key. Japanese's grammar is very different from English's grammar. But after you master the basics, the truth is Japanese's grammar per se is almost suspiciously easy. You almost wonder, is that really all there is? What makes it normally complex is that you've got all this formality. So little example. You want to say to somebody something that roughly means, um, I ask your favor, which you can slip into all sorts of human encounters. One way that you might say it is yoroshiku tanomu. Say it again. Yoroshiku tanomu. So yoroshiku kind of favor. So yoroshiku tanomu. Okay. Sorry about this Kurosawa voice. (laughs) That's all I know. Well, that's the basic way of saying it while you're like eating out of a bento box and you're probably a guy and you're saying that to another guy. But you might say instead of tanomu, then tanomimasu. Now, to us, that just sounds longer and, well, what? But tanomimasu, so yoroshiku tanomimasu, that 
is more formal. It's a step up, but it's not all the way up. It's not just two levels of formality. If you really want to be polite about it, you're dealing with somebody you don't know at all, and you're probably never going to meet them again, then it's yoroshiku onegai shimasu. And the onegai is kind of like a beg, like a pray, give me something. So yoroshiku onegai shimasu. And the shimasu is like to make or to do. So instead of just yoroshiku tanomu, that's bento box. Yoroshiku tanomuimasu. That's a little higher than yoroshiku onegai shimasu. That's more. Or it's yoroshiku onegai itashimasu. So that's even more formal. That's if you're standing upside down in the court or something like that. But then there's even more. Instead of yoroshiku onegai itashimasu, you could say yoroshiku onegai moshiagemasu. And that's longer and more formal. All of those are things that if you're a real Japanese speaker, you have to know. It's this kind of formality. We all feel it. English, especially modern English and especially modern American English, doesn't stress formality to that extent. But because we are human language speakers, we're always sensing it. We're always reaching for it a little bit. And so, for example, guys and dolls, when Adelaide says, let us not behave like a slob. So let us not behave, despite the fact that her actual comfort level is to say things like like a slob. Or here is a song from it, Take Back Your Mink. And the idea in this nightclub number is that a woman has been given a mink coat by a man who has certain intentions and she is protesting that she had no idea that the mink was going to be for that. And so the idea is that she's giving him back the mink and, and the women in the number are dancing and the idea is that they're, it's a strip club, you can imagine. But anyway, listen to this lyric in Take Back Your Mink with this business of from whence it came. That's a person sticking their little finger up. And this is, of course, a parody lyric, but it speaks to an aspect of how human beings communicate. I thought that each expensive gift you'd arrange was a token of your esteem. Now when I think of what you want and exchange, it all seems a horrible dream. So take back your mink to from whence it came and tell them to Hollanderize it for some other day. By the way, haven't you always wanted to know a new word for but? You know that you have. You were probably thinking of it just before you listened to this podcast. Well, you know, if you want a new word for but, then you are going to have to subscribe to Slate Plus. Slate Plus is a wonderful feature. In addition to this show, there is a little bit where I talk about something else. In this case, the bit is about a but. And in these Slate Plus segments, sometimes I even use more musical numbers, but more to the point. If you subscribe to Slate Plus, not only do you get the little tag at the end of my show, like it's a sitcom from the old days, but you don't have to listen to any commercials. You don't have to listen to me or anybody else doing them. And you get all that for a nominal fee. For a nominal fee, you get more show 
and no commercials. If you want a new word for butt, then you've got to get Slate Plus, because I do a bit about a butt. If you want a tag that is actually within the show instead of with Slate Plus, then listen to this. This is an episode of Lucille Ball's second sitcom. This is The Lucy Show. This is third season. We're in 1964. And this episode is about contact lenses. Listen to Lucy and Viv talking about contact lenses in 1964. Now, if you're so worried about your looks, why don't you get a pair of contact lenses? Oh, they're too expensive. I can't afford them. $200. Oh, you don't have to pay for them all at once. I was just reading Dr. Kaufman's ad here in the paper. I was looking at it. Here. Look at, oh, I forgot, you can't read. I can read the big print, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Contact lenses. No money down, 52 weeks to pay. Wear them before you buy. Free trial offer. Hear that? So right when High Spirits was playing on Broadway, the way somebody would talk about this rather new thing for most people was they were contact lenses. Now that, of course, goes back to our wonderful backshift phenomenon that has become a theme of this show. So you would know that back in the time of Mad Men, people would have said contact lenses instead of contact lens. And of all things, the Lucy show gives us proof, but more to the point. Notice lenses. Nobody says lensies, but notice how it almost feels like they could. It feels right because lens is kind of formal, and that would especially have been in 1964. But even now, you know, a lens smells more like pencil lead than like beef stew. And especially with contact lenses, you usually encounter them in the plural. Nobody is walking around wearing their contact lens. And so lensies, but no, it's physical. It's not an abstraction, and so you don't talk about your lensies, or at least I don't think anybody does, but almost. So that's processes and biases. That's why. It actually complicates the language. It does represent a certain amount of trying in that a person is trying to speak properly. They're technically overgeneralizing this ending. But the fact is that that's what people do. That's how language always changes. And formality is often part of why a language changes. There are all sorts of factors that we don't think about. An addendum. In the last show, I casually had this 1936 clip of Molly Pecan singing this Yiddish song. I never said what the name of the song was, as if, you know, everybody knows that like they know New York, New York. That was an accident. That was Yiddle Mitten Fiddle. And Yiddle Mitten Fiddle means roughly in Yiddish, it's like little Jewish person with the violin. So Yiddle Mitten Fiddle, but it rhymes. So Yiddle Mitten Fiddle is famous song, famous story title. So that thing, the that was Yiddle Mitten Let's see, what are we going to go out on musically? Uh, You know, how about, all right, here is something that we're going to do. This is a song that let me know what sex was. We're talking about the early 70s, and I didn't formally know, but there are times when a song just sounds like it. And I remember hearing this in the backseat of the car, and then once watching some of my extended family dancing to it at the end of a boozy party. And this is in the era where at parties, people actually drank hard liquor instead of sipping wine. I mean, that people got drunk in front of their children. And I remember listening to the lyrics of this song. This is um, Rufus and Chaka Khan doing Tell Me Something Good and thinking, I'm not sure what good they're talking about, but I can tell it's something really good and it's not food. And you kind of start getting 
ideas. It's funny when you think about when you first know about such things, such as, you know, me playing the show tunes and various other things about me. I know what many people have often speculated about and I talk about, you know, girlfriends and wives. But of course, people think, is he? And the answer is, I know why I might seem so. But here's how I know that I'm not. It's that when I first saw Wizard of Oz, of course, even mentioning that, that even that further fuels speculation. But when I first saw Wizard of Oz, when it was on TV, my mother sat me in front of it. I remember watching Judy Garland doing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and I was just mesmerized. But I didn't want to be Judy Garland. That wasn't why. I wanted to do Judy Garland. I asked my mother, who is that beautiful girl, and is she alive? So, That's how you know. Anyway, here is one of my favorite songs. It's Tell Me Something Good. And you can tell what the something would be. Anyway, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out and be answered later than I'm comfortable with. But you will get answers. Go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. By the way, it's actually an old word for butt, which makes it even cuter, but only with Slate Plus. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. Hours to each day.